May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. He boarded the airplane, a well-dressed six-foot-eight, and he hoped against hope for an emergency row so that he could stretch out his already two long legs for his flight. He was a pastor, a professor of theology, and he knew better, as I'm sure David Tanner and I can tell you, you never tell anyone on an airplane that you're a pastor. It's a big, big mistake. So he got onto the plane, he loaded his carry-on luggage above his head, and he sat down hoping to catch some Z's during his flight. And of course, he found a row that was quite small, and it was a small airplane with two seats on either side of the aisle, and he hoped that no one would sit next to him, but of course, the next biggest man he had ever seen in his life decides that that, in fact, is his seat as well, and they sat down right next to each other, fumbling over each other, limb upon limb. And so this pastor, his name's Jim, he, he closes his eyes and he, he crosses his arms across his chest and he hears the man next to him say, hey, is that a Bible? And Jim looks down and sees that his Bible, the spine of the Bible is sticking out of his bag and he thought, oh, great. And his seatmate said, what are you, a pastor or something? He said something like that. And he kept his eyes closed so that he could go back to sleep. And the man said, well, I'm not a believer. And the preacher, while his eyes were still closed, said, frankly, I don't care. (laughs) Doesn't make much of a difference what you do or don't believe. Jesus has already gone and done it all for you, whether you like it or not. So the preacher thought that would shut the man up, (laughs) let him sleep on the flight, but it didn't work. Because even though he sat there with his eyes closed and his arms across his chest, the man started talking and he didn't stop. First, it was just the usual airplane chit-chat between strangers, but eventually it got serious, and the preacher's seat partner started talking about Vietnam, and that's when the preacher opened his eyes and really started to listen. The man went on and on. He talked the entire flight and described all of the terrible things that he had done, that he had been told to do, and that how when he came back, his country didn't want him to talk about what he had been told to do. And eventually the man said, you know, I've had a terrible time living with it all, living with myself. And the preacher leaned over and said, well, son, have you confessed all the sins that had been troubling you? What do you mean? Confess. I ain't confessing, his seat partner said. And the preacher said, sure you are. What do you think you've been talking about this whole flight? I've been commanded. By Jesus, when I hear a confession like yours, to hand over the goods, to speak a particular word. So if you have anything else burdening you, now is the time to hand it over to me. And the man said, no, I think that's that's it. And suddenly he grabbed the preacher, grabbed him hard like he was going to fall out of the plane. He said, but I already told you, preacher, I'm not a believer. I don't have any faith in me. And the preacher unbuckled his seatbelt stood up over the man on the airplane. He said, well, that's no matter. Jesus says it's what's inside of us that's wrong with the world. Nobody really has faith inside of them. Faith alone saves us because it comes from outside of us, from one person to another. And I am now going to speak some faith into you. Of course, the fastened seatbelt sign lit up and dinged for the whole cabin to hear. A steward came over and very politely asked the preacher to sit down, and he said, I can't do that. 
he placed his hands on the head of the man sitting next to him, and he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I declare the entire forgiveness of all of your sins. And the man whispered back, but you can't do that. He said, oh, yes, I can, and I'm going to do it again. And so it got a little louder this time. In the name of Jesus Christ, I declare the entire forgiveness of all of your sins. And then he said it louder. In the name of Jesus Christ, I declare the entire forgiveness of all your sins and every single passenger on the airplane. They were watching these two figures at the front. And the louder the preacher got, the more the man wept over himself, so much so that his tears were staining his shirt. The plane was silent knowing that something strange and perhaps even holy was happening. And when the plane finally landed, the man leaned over to the preacher and asked, Hey, can you tell me just one more time? He said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I declare the entire forgiveness of all of your sins. It's as if he just couldn't get enough of the good news. And then the man said, You know, if what you said is true then it's the best damn news I've ever heard in my life. He said, but I, I don't know if I can believe it. It sounds too good to be true. It would take a miracle for someone like me to believe something so crazy good. And the preacher laughed. He said, friend, it takes a miracle for each and every one of us. And it's not too good to be true. It's too good. It's too true to be good. That's why we call it the gospel. It's a true story about a preacher named Jim who's told that story hundreds of times and preachers who have heard it have told it thousands of times because it's so good and it's so true. What I love about it is that the preacher doesn't sit back and merely listen to the man. He doesn't fill the silence with drivel like, oh, I feel your pain. I know what you're going through. Perhaps the two worst things we can ever say to someone when they're going through something. He doesn't minimize the sadness or the fear. He doesn't dismiss it with talk of responsibility or duty. He doesn't deflect or even change the subject. Instead, he listens and he offers what we call absolution. To use the language of Paul, he took the man out of his sins. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul is worried. He's worried about his friends in the faith, his Corinthian Christians. That's what the whole letter is about. They're drifting away from the path of the life and the truth and the way, and Paul wants to help them. He catches wind that they're no longer sharing the Lord's Supper together, and so he writes about the body of Christ having many members. He learns that they're constantly fighting over who is the best and who's the worst, so he writes about Christ being the head of the body. And here, in chapter 15, he gets to the real matter the resurrection of the dead. Paul, if you can tell, he's spitting some logic through his epistle. He says, this is it. I mean, this is it. It's this or it's nothing. Everything, and I mean everything, depends on the truth of this one who is the truth. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then your faith is futile and you are stuck in your sins. He writes about the story that he shared with him. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It's an announcement, a proclamation of things that have happened. It's not a collection of generic religious principles. It's not a list of what you should or shouldn't do. The heart of the gospel is the death 
and the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Paul doesn't pull any punches. If this isn't true, then we're all fools. It's hard, I think, today for us Christians to hear the radical nature of what Paul is writing. Uh, we forget, I think, sometimes that this letter was written and read in churches before any of the gospel stories were written down themselves. We forget that Paul's witness, his prayers, his ministry, that if he hadn't done what he did, then the story of the gospel might have just stayed in Israel among the Jews and never spread to Gentiles like us. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then the entire foundation of our faith has been in vain. Christian preaching is nothing more than wishful thinking. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then we mock ourselves with faithless worship, all while expecting people to live into a re new reality that doesn't actually exist. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then the only thing we can offer the world is a pious lie and nothing but hopelessness. But thankfully, there's no such thing as the word if in the lexicon of God. But of course, we still have a desire for proof. We're addicted to certainty, us modern folk. We want clarity above all things. We can't imagine a world outside the binaries of what we can prove or disprove. And yet life, life is a mystery. I can't prove the resurrection. No one can, not even Thomas Aquinas. Believe this. Believe that, we say in the church, and somehow the genuine character of our belief has become the litmus test for Christianity. Oh, you don't believe enough. Oh, if you just believed more. Which is made all the more strange when we consider the amount of doubt that's actually right there in the Bible. Doubt is part of faith. One of my former professors, Stanley Harawa, says, what a lost people we must be to think that God really cares whether we believe in him or not. You see, one of the most incredible aspects of what we call faith is that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is not contingent on our belief in it. Even in the days of our greatest doubts, Jesus is still Lord. You all ever seen the movie Elf? The end of Elf, I'm going to spoil it for you, I'm sorry. At the end of Elf, Santa's sleigh won't fly because there's not enough Christmas cheer. And Buddy the Elf has to get all of New York City to start singing about Santa Claus and so that he can have enough energy for the sleigh. That's not how Christianity works. Jesus isn't hanging up on the cross waiting for the faith of the world meter to fill all the way up before he comes down. He's not hiding behind the stone of the tomb. Do they really believe enough? Okay, now I'm ready. It doesn't work that way. We can't prove it. We can only trust it. We can only point to it and to the results of it around us. I love Mark's gospel because on the day of Easter, according to Mark, the women who discover the empty tomb, they run away in fear, and it says they said nothing to anyone because they were so afraid. But they told something to someone. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And we experience Easter even now, all these years later. Some of us rejoice in the good news of it all. Some of us are terrified by it. And yet Easter is why we're here. We're here because somehow or another we have heard the call of the risen Christ. Even though we may not know that's what it was when we heard it. Some of us, of course, are here looking for proofs. I say look around. That might be all the proof you need. The women who go to the tomb on that Easter morning, they're looking for and they're expecting a dead Jesus. And the angel says to them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He ain't here. 
He's in Galilee. Go. When Jesus mounted the hardwood of the cross, when he drew all things unto himself, Scripture says all of our sins, our past sins, our present sins, sins that we haven't even thought up of yet, that Jesus nails them to the cross and leaves them up there forever. We're no longer in our sins. As Christians, our sins don't define who we are. Even though the world will always see people for their mistakes, not in church. We've been set free from those things forever and ever. In church, we call it absolution. It's the proclamation of the promise that Christ made to us through his death and his resurrection. It's the declaration that even though Paul has a lot to say about sin, the only sins he ever mentions are the sins for which Christ has died, all of them. It's the conviction that Christ will keep banging on, a, on our heads, reminding us again and again and again, shouting it on an airplane if necessary, that you are forgiven. God so loved the world that God condescended God's self to come and to be in our miserable estate. God so loved the world that God broke forth from the tomb and left behind the chains of death so that we could do the same. God so loved the world that we might no longer be stuck in our sins. That preacher, Jim, from the airplane absolution, he walked through the airport after his encounter with his seat partner. And right before they made for an awkward, you know, two men, six foot eight, hugging each other goodbye in an airport, the preacher handed the man his card and he said, there's a good chance you're not going to believe you're forgiven tomorrow or the next day or even next week. So when you stop having the faith that I spoke into you, I want you to call me and I'll tell you again and I'll keep telling you until you believe it. And wouldn't you know, the next day, the man called the preacher and he called the preacher the day after that and the day after that, he called the preacher every day of his life until the day he died. And later, when someone asked the preacher why he kept answering the phone, he said, I wanted the last words he heard in this life to be the first words he hears from Jesus in the next. So hear the good news. Christ died for you while you're a sinner. And that proves God's love toward you. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. It is too true to be good. It's gospel. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever.